You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right. Well, if you have your Bible with you, open up to Acts 15, where we're going to be today, or feel free to pull it up on your phone as well. If that, uh, if you're one of those people with great discipline that doesn't get distracted by your phone, unlike me. All right. Well, we are continuing our series in Acts on the topic of unity and looking at how could it be that a, a community of faith could change so much over the 30 years during the time the book of Acts is recorded, and yet still say, stay so connected? You know, Acts begins with Jesus, after his resurrection, being physically present with his 12 apostles in Jerusalem, and it ends with Jesus being gone, at least physically, from them, and the disciples being spread out all over the Roman world. How, how could they stay so connected while so much changes? It's not just a historical question, it's a question for us today. You know, so much changes in our world around us. There are so many forces on us that that push us away from each other, even just in our own families, but uh, in our local churches and in communities around the world. How do we as Christians stay distinctively unified and connected to one another? So that's what we've been talking about over the course of this series. And today we come to Acts 15, which is... um, a passage that formalizes what God has been doing informally. It brings to a it brings to really a crescendo point this issue of does the unity of the church just apply to those who are of Jewish background, or does it really apply to everybody? Over the last few weeks, we've talked about how God's been at work not just among the Jewish people, but among Gentiles in chapter eight, and chapter ten, and chapter thirteen. But all that kind of was happening uh, without. This sounds silly to say, without formal approval of the church, because God can do whatever he wants. Uh, But it really comes to a question of, are people going to follow what God is doing, or are they going to, out of fear, out of anxiety, or out of tradition, or whatever, hold off the Gentiles from being part of the people of God? This is an important question for us today, because we still wrestle with this question uh, ourselves of, how do we decide when to change how we've always acted as a community of faith? What are reasons that we would use or not use to change our stance on things? Now, I'm going to make an assumption here and assume that there are some people in this room that by temperament or personality or upbringing or whatever are more progressive. And you like change. You like when things are different than how they used to be. When things are the same way for a while, you fear that you're missing out or that things are getting stale. And you like when things are different. And I'm going to also assume there are some people in this room that are are more conservative by personality. And you like things being the same. And you tend to have a fondness for the rearview mirror and how things were in the past. And you think that that success is often getting back to a golden age rather than trying to go forward to something new. And uh, in our church, there's, there's probably a mixture of positions in between there. And here's what I hope. I hope that neither of you like this sermon. Uh, at least not too much. <laughs> Right? Because, because I don't think we're going to find either a progressive or a conservative position baptized by this passage. But I hope that we're both going to be challenged by what happens here in the Jerusalem Council. That there are some ways that to be a, a faithful Christian requires being out of our comfort zone in terms of personality on both accounts. So what we're going to see is in chapter 15, uh, the issue of whether the Gentiles are accepted in the community of faith comes in front of uh, the the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, and they wrestle with this question. And they uh, take this, what I'm going to sort of lay out for you guys, is a, a threefold way to approach recognizing the work of God and looking at it from three different complementary lenses. And we're going to talk about how that applies today. 
And then at the end of the passage, even uh, in spite of maybe the Gentiles winning the argument, there's this greater good of unity that comes out in the discussion at the end. So that's where we're going in the next 25 minutes or so. Um, Let's jump into it in uh, Acts 15, verses 1 and 2. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about the church at Antioch, the sort of first Gentile majority church in history, um, the place that Antioch described in comparison to modern-day San Francisco, sort of a secular, affluent place. And uh, the church there has been reaching people that are of Gentile background um, with the gospel for probably about 10 years now. And word has gotten down to some of the uh, people in Jerusalem. And because there are some people who can never stop policing others, uh, verse, verse 1 says, they, But some men came down from Judea, and we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This obviously is in contradiction to what Paul and Barnabas have been saying to them over the last decade, and so it causes some uh, consternation. It says in verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, because if you've read the Bible and know about Paul, he doesn't have a small dissension or debate with anybody, <laughs> Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So there's this debate. Can you be a Gentile and be part of the people of God? In fact, that's a poor way to represent it. Uh, As one commentator said, in the Old Testament, uh, there was an expectation that Gentiles would become part of the people of God. But as John Stott says, the problem wasn't that they were Gentiles. The problem was that they were staying Gentiles. It wasn't a problem that Gentiles became part of the people of God. The Old Testament expected that. But the problem was that they weren't becoming Jewish. They weren't changing their identity markers. This is a a source of conflict for the church in Jerusalem who expects that God would work with the Gentiles the same way he had worked through and among them. And they expect them to become ethnically Jewish through the practice of circumcision. Now, um, I've got to be honest. Sometimes when we talk about circumcision, we become uh, sort of like 11-year-olds and we sort of snicker about it and joke about it and become uncomfortable about it because of the nature of it being about genitals. But I hope that today we can see why circumcision was so pivotal to the unity of the early church. You know, it'd be easy for us to say, that's so foolish. They're really going to cut off 99% of the people in the world from hearing the gospel over this issue of circumcision. Why, why don't they see it's more important to reach people than to keep their traditions? Well, if we said that, we'd kind of be ignoring what the Old Testament says about circumcision. I mean, think about it with me. And if, if you're new to the Bible, um, let me just give you a little bit of the history of circumcision in the Old Testament. In uh, Genesis, Genesis 12 to 22, um, God calls Abraham and all of his lineage to be a special people for himself. And it's from Abraham that the whole promised uh, line would come. And what marks that covenant? Circumcision, right? Everyone who comes after the line of, of Abraham is to be marked off as the covenant people of God based on the practice of circumcision. In fact, in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Moses, who's a pretty important person, right? Like, even if you don't know the Bible well, you know Moses, right? He's a special messenger of God. Even after he's seen God in the burning bush and and he's been the one to lead them out of uh, captivity in Egypt, even after he has done all these miracles by God's hand, um, Moses is about to be judged to the point of death for failing to keep circumcision in his family. That's how core circumcision is to Israel's identity and, from their perspective, to God's heart. So we understand if there was some Christian Pharisee 
which I know sounds like a contradiction in terms, but look at verse five with me, who says, I can't get past this. Verse five says, but some believers who belong to the party of Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. I can imagine there being some, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just try to be generous here, some Christian Pharisee, let's name him Judah for lack of a better name, and say that he would say to the other Christians, look, I've changed a lot in the last 20 years. I've changed a lot of my beliefs and my doctrines based on hearing the gospel, and I really believe that Christ is Lord. And so I'm comfortable with there being Gentiles in the community and them eating weird foods. It's really different for me, but, but I can live with it, right? I can live with the fact that I don't go to temple anymore and make sacrifices because I believe Christ is the sacrifice for all time on the cross. And that, that creates a lot of tension in my family on Yom Kippur, but I can live with it, right? But circumcision, circumcision is the mark of the covenant. Circumcision is the mark of faith. Jesus was circumcised. He never told us not to circumcise our children. Who do you think you are to get rid of the thing that God held so precious and so dear that he required it of Abraham and Moses and every one of our forefathers? Who are you to get rid of the mark that, that for the last 200 years has been the, the central thing that the Greeks have used to try to drive Jewish people out of existence? We have to hold this. If nothing else, this is the thing we have to hold to as the mark of the covenant. Now, I mean... Spoiler alert, this is not leading up to me saying we should all be circumcised, right? Like, this is, this is not a new ministry of our church. Um, all right, I went, I went that far without making a joke about it. I'm sorry, that's as far as I go. But I think it's worth us feeling the weight and the tension over this. Because if we see Acts 15 as just a fait accompli, like they, they weren't wrestling with it, then we don't learn anything from this passage about what it means for us to live in unity and for us to wrestle with difficult decisions. Because we're, in a similar sense, wrestling today with what do we hold on to and what do we leave behind from the generations that come behind us or come, come before us? What are the things that we say, nope, you have to hold this? And what are the things that we say, well, that was generational or that was cultural or that was just for a time? Now, I know there are some people uh, who don't want to change anything and there are some people who want to change everything. But if we're trying to live faithfully to Christ, it's worth us asking how do they wrestle with this issue of circumcision, even if we already know the outcome, so that we can wrestle with it in a similarly faithful way in our age and in our, in our day? All right, so let's, let's look at that wrestling. Um, and it starts in verse 6. Uh, it says, The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, I know this seems like a transition verse, but it's, it's worth considering for a second before we, we jump into how they handled this. That... For one, they cared enough about this to talk about it, to wrestle with it, to not just divide. You know, I, I don't mean to sound snarky, but there's a lot of times in church history that the Antioch church would have just said, well, you guys are wrong, we're right, we're not talking anymore, right? See you at Christmas. Like, we're just, we're just separating, we're dividing, we're splitting. But for the early church, they cared so much about unity that they were going to enter into this disagreement even as emotional and as significant as it was, and work to reach a conclusion. And they do it in community and in discussion. Now, it's, it's famously difficult to try to construct your theory of church leadership or church governance in the book of Acts. Because on one page, it looks like it was ruled by apostles. And then on the next page, it looks like it was ruled by elders. And then on the next page, it's apostles and elders together. And then on the next page, it seems to be one person leading the charge. 
And then on the next page, it seems like a prophet is involved in leadership. And you're like, how are we supposed to structure our church? Maybe you guys don't stay up at night with those questions, but, but I do. Um, I hope you don't. I'd be really just, be, there are other things to worry about. Um, but I think what we can learn from this passage or what we can take away confidently is whatever the leadership structure the early church had, it was in community and it was in discussion and deliberation together. As Proverbs 15.22 says, uh, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. What we see modeled here in the Jerusalem Council is, delay, is deliberate debate, discussion, and uh, theological and, and biblical uh, reasoning. That's really significant because if there was ever a time in church history that they could just call up God and say, God, can you just give us an answer on circumcision? Cool, we're done. It was now, right? In fact, later on in the passage, we'll see prophets from God uh, speaking, uh, encouraging them in this issue. But, but they don't lean on divine revelation and they certainly don't lean on authority Someone like Peter just saying, I'm in charge, I'm making a decision. Or, you know, one of the other apostles saying, I, I think I remember Jesus saying something about this. Let's, can I just be in charge and make my decision and all you guys can sit down and be quiet? But they, they lean on community decision-making together, which I think is important for us. And, and here's the th- sort of three things they wrestle with as they wrestle in a community. They, and it's most of the rest of chapter 15 is given to these three voices. Peter makes an argument based on the nature of the gospel. And then... Paul and Barnabas make a similar argument, but they do it in a different way. They make it based on the observation of the work of the Spirit. And then James makes a similar argument, but he bases it on Scripture. And I want you to think of those three, the nature of the gospel, the observation of the Spirit, and uh, the observation of Scripture, as sort of three legs to a stool that together represent how they move forward and change. And, and they're complementary. They're not contradictory. They all, they all come to the same conclusion, that when they look at how the gospel what the nature of the gospel is, and they look at how God is working, and they look at what scripture reveals, it leads them to the same point of decision together. So let me get into it here in verse seven with Peter. It says, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, And he made no distinction between us and them. And then listen to how Peter roots this in the gospel. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. this This is such a rich few verses from Peter, and we could talk about it for a long time. But I hope you hear what Peter said here. Their hearts are cleansed by faith. That's in verse 9. Why would we tell them to keep the law to be saved when we know that we couldn't do that either? That's in verse 10. And then he says, we are all saved by the grace of Jesus. Peter reminds them and then reminds us now of what we believe as Christians about the nature of the gospel that we don't come to God based on our good performance or our religious activity or our moral behavior, but simply by the grace of God, that he extends to us a free offer of salvation in Christ. Uh, You've probably heard the question asked at some point, if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And most Americans, if you ask them that question, if they're willing to entertain the idea of God in heaven, will say some form of, well, because I've been a good person or I've tried to live a good life 
or I haven't done anything that wrong, or I'm, I think I'm a better person than a lot of people in my family, um, which is kind of judgy, but whatever. Um, and of course, all those things underneath them have the belief that God lets people into heaven or brings people to himself based on us being good enough. But that's not what the Christian gospel is. The Christian gospel says that none of us are good enough. None of us have lived a good enough life. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us could make up for that sin based on good performance in the future or religious activity or being generous enough or uh, being better than other people around us. All of us are helpless before God based on our sin. It's only because Jesus Christ lived the life we were supposed to live, died the death that we deserved, and then is raised to life through the resurrection that we have hope of being able to stand before God ever at all if we believe in him. And Peter says, you know that, and you believe that. So if you believe that about the gospel, then why would you require the law for anyone? His argument is essentially, if people are acceptable to God based on faith, why are they not acceptable to us based on faith? If they're able to stand before God, why can't they be part of our church? If they, anyone who's acceptable to God should be acceptable to us. That's the principle from the gospel that Peter's making, and it's the same principle that applies here at Grace Today. That to be a part of our church, you need to be acceptable to God. And that's, that's it, right? If it's not required for salvation, why would we require it for membership in our local church? This argument that Peter's making is the same one uh, that Paul makes in Galatians chapter 2. He says, We know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And yet, and we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. This language from Galatians 2 and Acts 15 is, is beautifully symmetric, and, and they're um, both saying the same thing, that, that we come to God not based on obedience or practices, but based on faith in Christ. Now, if you know the book of Galatians, and you know that Paul wrote it, you think it's rather ironic that Galatians 2, which is about Paul confronting Peter and telling Peter he's being a wuss for acting uh, in, in concert for the fear of man, rather than in deep belief in the gospel, that that language is the same that Peter uses here in Acts 15, where he looks like he's being the brave one. Um, I've been thinking all about that all week, about how it is that Peter can say the right thing in Acts 15 and then be so scared of other people that he refuses to act on it in Galatians 2. But then I thought about my experience of my own human nature and those of people around me. Sometimes knowing and believing the right thing is not the same as having courage to act on it in front of other people. All right, so that, that's the first leg of the stool, the nature of the gospel. Uh, the second one is the observation of the work of God. And Paul and Barnabas represent this in verse 12. Uh, if you want to read more of it, the, the last part of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas talk a lot about how they've observed God at work and how that should frame their experience of acceptance of the Gentiles. But it's kind of summarized here in verse 12. It says, All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Signs and wonders is a phrase that's sometimes used in the Gospels to describe what Jesus has done, uh, some of the miracles that Jesus had done, some of the, the foundational ways that they understood what it meant that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. And now Luke is saying, Barnabas and Paul have seen similar signs and wonders through the Holy Spirit, not among Jews, but among Gentiles. 
that God is vindicating his decision to accept the Gentiles based on these proofs of his manifestation of his presence. Now, I imagine, this isn't in the Bible, but I just imagine that there's some grumpy apostle who's like, they weren't as cool as Jesus' ones. <laughs> I've seen better signs and wonders. You ever walk on water, Paul? <laughs> you know, um, because our human nature is sometimes to compare, to, to put ourselves above others, and to, rather than uh, expressing faith and wonder at God's work, to look down on what God is doing among others. This is why I, I am so delighted by some of you guys who serve in Grace Kids and in our youth ministries, who are able to see in each new student's delight at discovering the gospel, the very wonder of God at work in them. Because some of us can be pretty cynical and we can say, oh, I've seen this before. That's oh, not as good as it used to be. Or oh, I've seen better, right? But, but in this act of seeing signs and wonders, they see the voice of God and they delight in that. Now, I've got to be honest, of the three legs of the stool, uh, recognizing God's spirit at work and making decisions based on it is the one that I'm the least comfortable with, and our tradition of evangelicalism is the least comfortable with. That kind of sounds like Pentecostalism to a lot of us, and saying like, well, if we just follow what God seems to be doing, isn't that kind of ripe for manipulation? Isn't that kind of ripe for just doing what we want to do? Um, and it kind of raises this other objection that I think is worth talking about now of some of us might read this passage and say, this is great. I love that God can just change his mind like this. Can we just do this again? Like they had the Jerusalem council, let's just have the Seal Beach council. And we can just get together and we can see what leads people to faith and what drives them away. And we'll just change the stuff that drives people away from faith. And we just get rid of anything that's embarrassing in our generation, just like they got rid of circumcision. And we'll just get rid of issues of sexuality or gender or um, uh, science or anything that we don't like. We'll just, we'll just sort of say, like, God changed his mind, just like he changed his mind on circumcision. And, uh, and that'll, be, that'll be our path forward. Some of you are really angry with me for saying that right now, and some of you are like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Right? This, this is the tension that this passage, I hope, raises for you, as it raises for me. Is this God changing his mind? Is this God changing his perception or his perspective? Uh, and would he do that now, or would he do that again, or do we expect him to do that again? Uh, the reason I think this is such a, a pivotal question to ask about Acts 15 is because it gets at the nature of what it is that caused the change over circumcision. Is it something that God liked and then didn't like? Or is it something more foundational to what happened on the cross and what happened as a result of the gospel? And to answer that question, let's get to the third part, uh, what James says. Oh my goodness, we are almost out of time. Verse 13, after they had finished speaking... James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as, just as it is written. Okay, I'm, I'm going to read this quote from Amos in a second. But I just want to confess to you, sometimes when I'm reading the Bible on my own, the New Testament on my own, and I get to one of these quotations of an Old Testament passage, I, I kind of gloss over a little bit. Because they're a little harder to understand sometimes, they require a little more background that we don't always have. And so I imagine for you reading it for the first time this morning as we go through it, that maybe it's going to be a little tricky for you to follow as well. Uh, maybe you're just smarter than me, uh, but, but for me it's a little tricky. So I'm going to go a little slow as we go through it. Uh, verse 16. This is from Amos 9, a book written that, that 
James is quoting here in Acts a few hundred years before, and he's quoting uh, this first-person account, this use of the word I, that refers to the messianic voice, that refers to what the Messiah will do when he comes, who as Christians we believe is Jesus. Verse 16, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So what's Amos saying, and, and why is James quoting him? What Amos is saying is that when the Messiah comes, his role is going to be to rebuild the line of David. David was the king about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. He was sort of the, the high watermark politically and spiritually in the history of Israel. And God had promised to David 3,000 years ago that one day one of his lineage would rule over his kingdom. Uh, in fact, that there would never be a time in history where I... I someone from the lineage of David, would not rule over the people of God. This was a remarkable prophecy, a remarkable hope, and a remarkable promise to David. And as Christians, we see it fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Now, when Jesus comes and he proclaims the kingdom, there's all this misunderstanding, based on passages like this, about what kind of rebuilding of the fallen tent of David would happen. Jesus talked about his kingdom, but not as a kingdom of this world, not a military kingdom, not a nationality kingdom, but one of every tongue and tribe and nation, not based on power, but based on faith in him. And it would come not just for political ends, but for spiritual ends as well. He would rebuild the fallen tent of David, referring to the temple, not as a physical place, but in his own body, rebuilt as a result of not human hands, but God's hands in his resurrection. And so James is thinking about this passage from Amos 9. He's thinking about what he's observed in his half-brother Jesus. He's thinking about the resurrection, and he's saying, guys, I'm making a connection here. If Jesus has accomplished all this, if he is the one who's truly restored the people of God, what's the, what's the purpose of that? And he explains it in verse 17. He says that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Right? That's so that everyone out there, all the people outside of Israel, may seek the Lord. And that all Gentiles who are called by my name... It, so he's, he's using what's called apposition here. He's saying that, that all the people out there, that the remnant of mankind and the Gentiles, the same people, would seek God. This is a connection that James makes as he says, if that's the purpose, if Jesus has died and resurrected so that the fallen tent of David would result in the nations coming to know God and staying Gentiles, then who are we to contradict God's purposes and plans in Revelation and Scripture? This really gets at the core issue of why there's no such thing as the Jerusalem Council today. As Christians, we don't believe that it's in our purview to just change what God is doing because there is nothing like the cross. It's not just that we don't have the authority that the apostles had, because the apostles' authority is based on the nature of the gospel, the nature of Scripture, uh, the observing work of the Spirit, we can do those things today. We can reason from the gospel. We can reason from Scripture. We can watch what God's up to. But that there's nothing that has shifted humanity's perspective like the cross or their relationship with God like the cross. I know it seems weird to say that there is more similarity between us and 2,000 years ago than there was between 2,000 years ago and 3,000 years ago. But it's true theologically. Right? We are in the same boat as the early Christians. We're all on this side of the cross and resurrection. And so we don't change our relationship to God because God has not changed our relationship to him. All right, there's a lot more we gotta talk about there, but we gotta move on. 
in this sense, the Gentiles, they, they win the argument, right? That circumcision is not required, the keeping of the law is not required, that's why some of you are going to have a bacon cheeseburger for lunch today. Um, but even in that winning, James still has an eye towards unity. And so he says in verse 19, um, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, right? That's the, you guys win. But, look at verse 20, should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. This fourfold standard is famously difficult to get our minds around because they seem to be random categories from random places in the law. They don't seem like the most important things. I mean, if you were to choose four laws that someone should take from the Old Testament, I would hope murder would be one of them. That seems pretty important, right? Why three things about food and then one thing about sex? Like, what, what is that? How, how is that the boil down of the law? And the commentators have struggled with this for since Acts was written, basically. And there's no neat and clean answer I can give you, except that it seems to be a quotation from Leviticus 17 and 18, because that's the only other time we see these thing, four things grouped together. Um, the view that I find most compelling of why the early church chose these things is that it had to do with the evangelization of the Jews. That um, these were four distinctive things that Gentiles, Christians, would not have done on their own, that were not um, necessarily on their radar culturally, that would require a shift for them, that would require that uh, they abdicate some of their personal autonomy for the sake of reaching their Jewish neighbors. And the reason I think that is the most compelling to me is in verse 21. It says, For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. I think what James is saying uh, is that wherever you live, Gentile Christians, there are Jewish people watching you. And they're deciding whether they're going to consider Jesus as Messiah or not based on how you live. So we're asking you to give up some of your preferences, some of your rights, some of your freedoms for the greater good of reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Admittedly, there is a problem with that view. It's what you do with sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is not just an indifferent thing for Christians. If you read the New Testament all the way through, sexual immorality is a major thing for Christians. It's not something that we just voluntarily choose to give up on sexual immorality for the sake of reaching our neighbors, but it's something that has to do with your own holiness before God and, and your holiness in your relationships with others. So there is a problem with that view, but, but we got to move on for a second. Because I think the Jerusalem Council gives us some guidance on unity for today. It has to do with how we understand what it means to live together and to reason together, even when there are difficult issues in front of us as a community. You know, for the the church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem, they were wrestling with two good things. And they had to choose, uh, are they going to choose the good of the law or the better thing of getting to reach the nations for Christ? And we're often faced with that same tension as Christians today. Are we going to choose our own preferences, even good preferences that we like, or are we going to choose the greater good of our neighbor? As Paul would write in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As Christians, we're called not to prioritize the things that we feel like we deserve or we like. We're called to prioritize those that our neighbor needs and likes, especially, especially those who are far from God. Now, this is sometimes a challenge because uh, we can be selfish. We can say, well, why do they get it the way they like it? I want it the way I like it, right? 
And then the person can say, why do you get it the way you like it? I want it the way I like it. And that's how churches divide. But part of standing on this side of the cross is looking at Jesus as our Lord, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto or grasped onto, it's Philippians 2, but emptied himself and taking on the very nature of a servant, became obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Right? We look at Jesus as our example in faith, who is willing to put the, the salvation of others before his own comfort or preferences, and we see what it means to be a follower of Jesus in him. Well, we're going to take communion together in a few minutes. And um, we used to, before the days of COVID, pass around one common loaf for us to all take as a reminder that we are unified in Christ. Now, hygiene has made that kind of difficult. And so you guys got the special moon communion, uh, astronauts communion thing. Uh, and and I'm, I'm glad for the hygiene of it, even if the metaphor is a bit lost. But I hope that your mind, at least, as we take communion, will go to the reality that we are united in Christ, not as a result of our obedience or our earning our way in, but as a result of what God has done, based on the nature of the gospel itself. As we take the bread and cup, we'll be reminded that, uh, in the words of Jesus, that we take the cup as a mark of the new covenant, right? In some ways, a replacement of the mark of the covenant of circumcision, a sense that we are accepted by God not based on what we've done, our own religious uh, performance, but based on the fact that Christ has died the death we deserve. And that if we believe in him, we can have life eternally with him and all those who believe in his name. Well, looking forward to taking communion with you in a moment. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters here who so often uh, give up their preferences for the sake of people around them, people in their families, people in this church, uh, other, other people around the world. And I'm grateful for the ways that so many people here model lives of servant leadership and of humility before you and before one another. God, we ask that the gospel would continue to shape us in that direction, that we would not uh, stress our own rights or privileges, but ask the question of how much, uh, not how much can I get, but how much can I serve? And God, as we take communion, we're reminded of how much you have served us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.